This podcast is sponsored by Bang & Olufsen. A concert recording, a new symphony, even your favourite podcast. It matters how it sounds. Peter Bang and Sven Olufsen knew this when they founded their Danish audio brand in 1925, and their vision endures today. For nearly a century, Bang & Olufsen has been pushing the boundaries of audio technology and continues to sit at the forefront of acoustic innovation, because sound matters. Find out more at bang-olufsen.com forward slash classical. Welcome to the Music to My Ears podcast, brought to you by BBC Music Magazine, the world's best-selling classical music magazine. This week, Reviews editor Michael Beake sits down with the award-winning British film and television composer Debbie Wiseman. Debbie talks about writing music for the small screen, the pleasure she gets from listening to her friends play music, and the challenge of recording her latest film score during lockdown. There's even a sneak preview of a track from the score, which is for the forthcoming film To Olivia. Well, hello, Debbie. Hello, Mike. It's great to see you. <laughs> You too. Uh, I, I will say good evening because it is the evening. Is the evening a, a normal working time for you or do you like to shut up shop at a certain time of the day? No, I, I often work in the evening and I like working in the evening because it's quiet and uh, I don't get so many emails and calls and, and uh, distractions. So actually working in the evening is a really nice time for me. And I, I like it when it's when it's dark. For some reason, I like working in the dark. There's something about the focus that you have in the evening. I used to be the other way around. I used to get up really, really early in the morning and work before anything. You know, so by about nine o'clock, I'd done quite a lot of work and I felt quite smug. You know, when I got to sort of 10 o'clock, I'd achieved quite a lot. Most people hadn't even started their working day, so I would get up and feel really smug. But I've noticed over the past couple of years that's changed, and I prefer the evening now. But it varies, and it depends on what I'm working on, of course. The only problem with working in the evening is that I do find when I go to bed, the tunes are still going around my head. So I have to give myself at least an hour of wind-down time after I finish writing. Otherwise, it's impossible to get to sleep because I've got the tunes going around in my head. Talk us through a little bit about your space that you work in, because I think it's nice to paint a picture for people to understand a composer's workspace and, and how it's all set up. So what have you got around you in there? What can, what can people imagine seeing? Well, um, the centrepiece, of course, is my grand piano, which is where everything happens and where I write and uh, where I feel most comfortable. I'm just at the piano and I've got my manuscript paper and I've got my pencil. It's quite old-fashioned, really. It's nothing... Um, particularly high tech. It's my tools, you know, it's, it's like, I suppose for a book writer, they have their, they either work at a computer or a typewriter, they've still got one of those old things. Um, or maybe they even write by hand, some of them, and, but I still write by hand. So I sketch everything on manuscript paper and pencil. And then at that stage, because the technology is now available to us, around the piano, I have a big screen where I run the, the, the film or the TV show that I'm working on. Uh, and then I have, a whole load of different samples of instruments, everything from woodwind, brass, percussion, strings, weird and wonderful electronic sounds that I might be using to create the score. And I start the orchestration. So once I've written it at the piano, I then decide who's going to play what. Is this going to be played on the flute or is this going to be played on the clarinet? And I start to orchestrate it, playing all the different instruments into my music software program. 
and slowly but surely build up the score. And that's what I play directors or whoever I'm writing for. I play them my, what it's called a mock-up, my preview of the score. And they listen to that knowing that it'll be replaced by the real thing. But it's a very useful way of demonstrating what's going on musically. Sure. And and have you felt sort of any pressure over the years to sort of keep updating kit and be on top of how that stuff is changing? Yeah, definitely. You have to, actually, Mike. You know, you you, Mm. you can't be a dinosaur, much as I'd like to, you know, much as I'd love to just (laughs) sort of sit here with my manuscript paper. It doesn't really work in today's world. Everybody wants to hear the music previewed before they go in the studio. And so, yes, you do have to keep up to date. And I'm constantly updating. I've got a Pro Tools set up, which is what's the sort of standard usage in the studio is Pro Tools, which I've also got here, which um, allows me to sync all the music to picture when I'm writing to picture. And I have, you know, a sophisticated software program. I'm not technical. Luckily, my husband, Tony, is so he can sort of help me work it all because I'm very untechnical, yeah. as you as you noticed when we were trying to set up this podcast. <laughs> I'm saying nothing. It was it was a very it was, well-oiled it machine. Was smooth, <laughs> eventually. But, you know, generally, I sort of don't like the technology to get in the way of the composition. And I think the danger sure. is, is when it takes over your composing life. I like the piano, because that's my instrument, to be the centrepiece. And then it's the manuscript paper that's my centrepiece, because that's what I'm writing on. And I can hear most of it in my head. I just try it out at the piano, make sure I like it. And that's the, that's the composing process. And talk about the piano there being the centre. And the piano has obviously been something that you've been passionate about since you were very, very young. Um, in terms of recorded music when you were young, was there something that made you fall in love with music? Was there a piece of music that captured your attention, perhaps? I remember going to a school concert when I was about seven, eight, something like that, and hearing one of the kids playing Chopin's Prelude in E minor. You know, the one that's very, it's actually yeah. quite simple. Da, da, da. It's very simple. It's got these chords in the left hand and the melody in the right hand. Um, and it wasn't played terribly well by this, as you never do when you're a child. But it's one of those one of those pieces that you learn, you know, when you're when you're learning the repertoire because it is simple. Um, but it's got some lovely chord changes and beautiful harmonies. And I did hear that and thinking, wow, that's just gorgeous. Even though it wasn't played very well, I could hear the harmony changing and how beautiful it sounded when that harmony developed and changed. And then when I learned the piano and started to learn from about eight um I got to that piece eventually and started to learn it and um loved it again at that point and it is you know anyway Chopin you know for pianists is a, is a, a wonderful you know a huge volume of piano music every piece is more beautiful than the last and there's so much there so I did play a lot of the preludes and um the nocturnes when I was learning and that piece I remember being one of the first pieces that I just thought was a beautiful piece of classical music. I didn't call it classical, I just called it a lovely piece of music. Do you ever play for pleasure now? I mean, beyond composing. 
Do you sit and never play? Um, I mean, I see music as pleasure anyway, from start to finish. Sure. And my writing is pleasure and working at the piano is pleasure. So everything I write and everything that I do around music, I don't really see it as anything. I don't really see it as work, to be honest. It is a pleasurable experience. So my work is happily what I enjoy doing. I don't think I ever sit down and think, oh, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take out you know, a, a, a Mozart sonatina that I haven't played for years and play that for pleasure. Because I'm always working alongside music. I'm either writing or working on orchestration or I'm in the studio recording. So I, I have it in my life always. And therefore, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like I need to sit down and play something just for pleasure. So it, it's not quite the same. And tell me a little bit about conducting, because you conduct as well. Uh, was that something that just came with sort of as part of the job or is it something you pursued and wanted to sort of, you know, be good at and, and want to learn how to do? I realised when I started to compose scores for TV that there was never going to be a budget that would cover at the very beginning, you know, tiny, tiny little budgets for composing for documentaries and small dramas, which I did when I started out. I realised that there was never going to be um, a budget to hire a conductor. So I better learn how to do it. And I did have a couple of conducting lessons at Guildhall, Guildhall School of Music and Drama, where I trained, but they were very kind of just you know, supplementing the whole composition course. They were, it wasn't a conducting course, but I did have some lessons, which I really, really enjoyed. And I knew the basics, to be honest. You know, I knew how to conduct, you know, in four, in three, in six, eight, all that. I knew how to do it. But I hadn't done it professionally. So my first score, I went in the studio and I stood up in front of, I think it was about five or six musicians. It was just a handful of players and realised that I had to conduct and I did it on the job. And it's hard because you're working with these professional session musicians, the best in the business generally. And uh, you have to sort of do your job. And at first I was very, very um, scared about the whole thing. But eventually I realised quite early on that when it's your own music, <laughs> and this is different to conducting repertoire if you're conducting a Beethoven symphony or whatever, when it's your own music, nobody can really tell you how it should go <laughs> except you. <laughs> so you sort of... <laughs> only you know. <laughs> only you know because it's come out of your head. And actually musicians are there to help and to interpret the composer's score. And this is what they're trained to do. Now I absolutely love conducting I love working music with musicians I love that moment of hearing it for the first time where a fabulous player interprets your score and interprets your your music for the first time it's a magical thing and I love it and I wouldn't I wouldn't not do it now unless there was a reason why I couldn't but I just absolutely love it um, and you talk about conducting and let's talk about concerts a little bit. Obviously, you've taken part in many memorable concerts yourself. Um, but as a concert goer, I mean, you probably maybe you don't go to so many concerts these days because you're so busy. But do you remember a t any uh, concerts that stood out for you maybe when you were at Guildhall or was there, was there a concert that you thought, wow, that's just the most amazing evening I've ever had? Well, I remember um, one recently and it was a concert last year, actually, at St. John Smith Square in November. And um, it was a premiere by a wonderful viola player who's also a, a dear friend of mine called Philip Dukes. And I've worked with Philip um, many times. He's played on Wolf Hall and The Glorious Garden and the musical Zodiac and all these projects. He's a stunning player. 
And he was doing a performance with Tasmin Little of Mozart's Sinfonia Concertante, uh, which is for violin and viola. And it was actually Tasmin Little's final performance before she, she retired. Uh, of course. Uh, and Philip's a good friend of hers. And they played it to this really moving, very, very memorable performance. The conversation between the two of them musically was was absolutely wonderful. They were both at the top of their game. And that was a great concert. about when you were sort of aspiring to be a composer was writing for the screen always part of that or did that happen along the way as well I think it was always a part of yeah I think I always knew that I wanted to write for pictures I like the idea of having something to inspire the music and when you've got a film or a television program you've got such a gift in front of you because there's a location there's a story there's drama there's characters and a kind of in immediate inspiration, which as a composer you can you can um, tap into, and it helps inspire the music. I also like the collaboration with the director. You get feedback immediately. You can enjoy trying things out together and going on the journey of the music together, which is lovely. And actually, my composition teacher was Buxton Orr, and he'd written for films in 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 his career particularly horror films. He was quite well known for writing horror films. So he didn't discourage it, even though at the time when I was at music college, I was asked and expected to write perhaps more avant-garde music uh, for the concert hall. Buxton didn't discourage anything. He, he didn't care whether it was a song or a, a, a piece for string quartet or something that might be suitable for a film or television theme. He was open to all music and that was hugely valuable. And when you're working on something which is an ongoing uh, series, like Father Brown, which you have like 90 episodes or something you've done now. I know, it would have been a hu- would have been 100 had we not gone into lockdown this year. Wow. Yeah, we would, we would have reached the 100th episode, which would have been just amazing. Gosh. I know. Is that the longest, the longest series you've worked definitely. on? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And, how, and how do you keep that inspiration up if it's, you know, it's sort of like, like Columbo. It's like the same sort of setup, sort of week after week, same characters, maybe obviously the odd guest character. Well, the great thing about Father Brown is, although there are key themes for the characters, we've got we've got his sleuthing theme, we've got a theme for Lady Felicia and um, Mrs. McCarthy and the key characters. There's a theme for Sid. Each episode, there is a new story, a new cast, a new a new a new murder. <laughs> so it's the most dangerous place to live in the whole whole of the world is Kembleford. <laughs> if you go to Kembleford and see Father Brown, get out quick because there's, there's bound to be a murder. But, you know, you know that there's going to be something. That, and every story is different. You know, one might be yeah. a, a set in a house, a, a haunted house, or one might be set in a fairground or... Uh, you know, they have different locations. So there's always something new to inspire the the music. And it's it's just the greatest fun, that series. I, I was really missing it this year because, you know, 10 episodes um, fly at me in quick succession, usually from about 
um, May onwards. And of course, they couldn't shoot this year. Uh, so it was really, I really missed it this year. It's the most brilliant thing to write for. I absolutely love it. And when you're when you're approaching the first episode of a new series, do you have to sort of get in the in the Father Brown zone? Do you have to sort of put it on like a, a costume? Exactly. Like yes, a... I, I put on my I put on my hat and my you know my gown just like he does. <laughs> but no, you do you do have to get into the Father Brown spirit. I have you know I have my themes. I've got the main themes for the characters, so all that's there, and that's very useful. But that, they twist and they turn and they adapt through each other. Every every episode is written from scratch. Brand new music for each episode. There's no you know, some people often ask me about this series, I think because there have been so many episodes, is it a library of music? No, it's not. Every episode is scored to picture. And does it take over? You're, are you constantly thinking, is that little theme running through your head for like, you know, two or three months? Probably, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But it does, you know, the great thing is, although it is a long running series and I have written a lot of episodes, it, I never get tired of it because every episode there's something new. So a theme like that is, and, and music that you're working with regularly is sort of is sort of music that you sort of have no choice but to live with. Um, is is there any music that you can't live without that you have to go to for any reason? Is there a piece that you always turn to for I don't know to cheer you up, to, for solace, for or any any reason? Well, this will probably surprise you because it's nothing like the music that I write and uh, a composer that you probably wouldn't think I would absolutely love based on the style of my music, but it's actually Olivier Messiaen. And um, I was, when I was at college, I, I was encouraged to write quite avant-garde music and I really couldn't because I loved melody and I wanted to write tunes and all that, that, that sort of lovely lush stuff. But I was encouraged to write avant-garde music. And uh, my brother brought home uh, Messiaen's Tarangalila Symphony. And I don't know where he got it, but he just thought I might like it and listen to it. And I put it on and this wonderful, colourful music just completely took over my my whole life for about, you know, two or three weeks. I couldn't get it out of my head. I thought, this is wonderful music. It was like nothing I had ever heard. And as well as being great music, it was avant-garde, but it also painted pictures. I could draw pictures with it, which I couldn't do with other contemporary music that I'd been listening to at the time. 12-note stuff, which was quite technically brilliant, but it didn't touch me in the same way as Olivier Messiaen's music did and occasionally for me now I do go to the Tarangalila symphony and I listen to um, sections of it and because of the colour and the, the just the magic of it and from the first note of any actually any Messiaen piece you know it's him he has a unique sound a unique quality to the sound and draws pictures and they're different pictures to anything else that you you would experience with any other composer and I think that's a great gift. So I have to say Messian. And actually, I, I, when, I, when I did Desert Island Discs, I chose him. Uh, I chose that piece as the piece that I would save <laughs> because, you know, because it sort of saved me in a way. It saved me from uh, not knowing how to spend my three years at music college and how to write music that could draw pictures in an avant-garde way in a new way and it sort of it taught me how to do that not that I wrote in that style but it showed me a way of of creating music that that could paint pictures even if it wasn't with a melody
are there things that you are longing to do? Is is are there works under the surface that are just screaming to get out if only you were given the opportunity? I don't have a like sort of a massive desire to do one particular thing. I just have a massive desire to keep writing music. And as long as I can keep doing that and keep being productive and keep writing music that that hopefully musicians will enjoy playing, then that, I'm happy. I'm happy doing that. I don't have a, a great desire to write a grand opera or anything like that if that you know if that's what you mean. But I do have a great desire to keep writing music. I've got a new film called To Olivia. Uh, which was which was a wonderful um, wonderful film which we recorded just well sort of just after the lockdown restrictions eased for the first time, and it stars Hugh Bonneville as Roald Dahl. It's a film about Roald Dahl and his marriage to wow. Patricia Neal. Uh, Keely Hawes plays Patricia Neal, and it's um, directed by um, a great collaborator and friend of mine called John Hay. And that's coming out in February. I'm really looking forward to that. We're just putting together the soundtrack album for that. So I'm really looking forward to that being released. It's a really touching, beautiful film. I've just written a piece for the wonderful cellist Stephen Isselis. And he's uh, performed it with his pianist, uh, Mishka Rushdie Moman. And I was so thrilled to write for Stephen. I've been a huge fan of his for ages and ages, as long as I can remember, actually. And um, the piece is uh, going to be premiered next year on Classic FM, start of the new year. And the piece is called A Luster to This Day. And it's to sort of start the new year with, with hopefully in a better way than we've had this year. And that was a great thrill to write for musicians that I admire and love. Um, I've worked a lot with the National Symphony Orchestra over the, year, uh, the past few years, as you know. Um, yeah. And that's been great because they're all great friends and great musicians. And if I can continue and write music for people that I love, that I love working with, that play beautifully, um, then that's that's fine. That will keep me happy. <laughs> the official last question for Music to My Ears podcast is what's your current musical obsession? But that may be difficult if you're in the midst of working. Maybe you're not ever listening to other things. <laughs> I, I tend not to listen to other things. And I don't really, I, I don't, I mean, a set, obsession is quite a strong word. I have, um, I do like, in the same way as I like going to concerts of friends and mm. feeling their nerves and watching them play. I also quite like listening to music of friends, other composers that are friends. And my dear friend, Joseph Horowitz's music, I find absolutely wonderful and delightful and inspiring and um, I've been listening to his oboe concerto and the slow movement is exquisite it's absolutely exquisite I mean I love the whole the whole piece but the slow movement is exquisite and the performance is is beautiful on the cd as well um, I enjoyed his Captain Noah which was recently uh, played again on Radio 3 and I think there's something rather lovely about listening to your friend's music and and enjoying it and being able to say to them, I, re I really, I just enjoy, I listened to that this morning. I really loved it. And I always love it when I, I hear from other composers and feedback on my music. There's something very special about that because you, they, you, you, that, you know, they feel your pain, <laughs> you know, they, yeah. and there's something that's it's quite, it's same, with, it's same with musicians, you know, you sort of, there's an understanding of what it takes to be a musician and the dedication, certainly as a performer, that you, you know, the years of practice, the years of dedication from a very young age to deliver a performance, you know, like Philip Dukes and, and Tasman Little did at the St. John Smith Square concert. They did, delivered a performance 
And that performance, to be able to deliver that, doesn't happen overnight. It takes years and years and years of dedication and practice, perfecting that skill. And musicians have this sort of unspoken uh, understanding of that. And it is an understanding because you you know that there's a hell of a lot of heartache and pain and and um, it, you know a lifetime isn't long enough to learn a musical instrument to be a great composer. It just isn't long enough. You know you have to cram it in as much as you can um, yeah. in in the in your most productive years. And so it's I just I I enjoy that. I enjoy working with wonderful people and and working with friends and listening to friends' music as well. learning I, I guess as a musician completely you? I mean you never stop learning and I think it's a, a huge learning curve every project I start from scratch and think oh gosh am I going to be able to am I going to be able to get this right I mean in the John the blank page the blank page exactly I mean you know that as a writer yourself as well <laughs> you know that the feeling of a blank page and you know I I with the John Hay film with to Olivia um Finding that theme for Olivia took a long time. And I was watching the film over and over again and loving it. And I played John two or three themes and I just knew they weren't right. And he would very patiently sit with me and say, I'm not sure, you know, or, mm, you know, there would be this kind of hesitation. And then one night after talking to him about a particular style and working with him again, I sat at the piano and came up with something that I just knew instinctively would, was there. You know, I felt it could be the Olivia theme, but until I played it to him, I wasn't sure. So I rung him up. It was quite late, actually. Um, <laughs> and it was probably way past his bedtime. And I rang him up and <laughs> said, what do you think? I played it to him down the phone on the piano. And I just knew by his instant positive response that he liked it and it was going to work. And that was the key to it. And then from that moment, I was able to write the rest of the score. But it was getting that thumbs up from John and knowing that we cracked the theme that unlocked the rest of the score. But it didn't happen overnight. You know, it took a long time to come up with that tune. And and even though the film spoke to me directly and I loved it, for some reason, it took longer than normal to come up with that theme. But when I got it, it then just flew. You often don't have the beauty of time, though, do you? So you haven't got time to really get it as right as you'd like sometimes, That's maybe, true. if you're working to a very tight deadline. Yeah, I mean, sometimes the tight deadline works because you're forced into uh, getting the adrenaline rush and getting it down. And that can work. And I've done that a few times over the years, had to deliver. And sometimes yeah. that can work. What happened with To Olivia was actually we were due to record just at the start of the lockdown, and we had booked Air Studios uh, in London to record and we booked a lovely 50-piece orchestra and then lockdown hit and we couldn't. So we cancelled it and actually the producer was the first to say, no, we must wait until it's safe to do, to safe to record. So we cancelled everything. The studios all closed, as you know. Yeah. And we thought, in hindsight, very naively, 
oh, it'll be fine, you know, in six weeks' time we'll be back. Let's book it in six weeks' time and we'll be fine, you know, it'll all be over. Yeah. So we booked for six weeks down the, down, the, uh, down the track. And then, of course, it wasn't fine. And we had to work out a way of doing it. And we managed to get, we were one of the first orchestras back in the studio straight after the lockdown restrictions eased. We got back in the studio, but we had to record over a period of two days in smaller groups um, we had the brass separately uh, and the strings. Everybody sort of separated off behind screens. It was quite, it was quite different. It's a, quite a different way of recording. And also the strings, instead of, as you know, they usually share a stand, every player had their own stand and um, everybody had to be two metres apart. So all the string players were two metres apart all the way around them, not just, you know, just in front, but all the way around two metres separate. Uh double the amount of music copying you know because all the, all the all the music had to yeah, be copied gosh. uh you think about things yeah like that, you don't yeah. think about things like that but of course there's a practical side of it um was quite was quite dramatic but the great news is that it sounded as good if not better than normal because really? interestingly and i spoke to justin pearson who's a wonderful cellist who booked all the musicians for the national symphony orchestra and also played played principal cello on the on the score everybody stepped up as a soloist and there was something about everybody having their own stand. And this is me, you know, I've got my own stand. I don't have to share with anyone else. And everybody stepped up as a soloist. It was remarkable. And it sounded glorious. And I'm so proud of the score. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for spending some time with us this evening. Oh, it's a pleasure. Really great to hear about your work and your music. And we look forward to hearing what's in store for you in 2021. Thanks, Mike. That was composer Debbie Wiseman on life as a film and TV composer. Her score for Two Olivia is scheduled for release by Decca alongside the film in February 2021. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the team at BBC Music Magazine. Do let us know what you think by rating and reviewing it wherever you've been listening. If you want to find out more about BBC Music Magazine, we're available in print and various digital formats across the world. Or you can visit our website, classical-music.com, where you can read all the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews and a good deal more. Thank you to Acast for hosting this podcast and to our producer, Jack Bateman. Do you want to be part of a global community of people who are passionate about sound? Join the House of Bang & Olufsen for the latest news on sound innovation, as well as invites to exclusive events, special offers and behind-the-scenes content. You'll also be the first to receive information about new and limited series products, from atelier editions to highly coveted collaborations. Sign up today at bang-olufsen.com forward slash classical.